Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, sexual assault, domestic abuse, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1964, the city of Boston, Massachusetts, was in a state of terror. At least 13 innocent people had met the same grisly fate, death by strangulation. Their killer was dubbed the Boston Strangler, and he was still on the loose. Newspapers speculated about the Strangler's true identity. They said he had to be a deranged criminal, possibly an escapee from a local psychiatric facility. Locals let their imaginations run even further. Some Bostonians claimed the Strangler had superpowers. Rumor had it that the murderer could punch holes through brick and scale walls like a spider. But the truth was far less fantastical and far more disturbing. The Strangler was a man whose earliest memories were profoundly traumatic. His father was physically and emotionally abusive and once broke all his mother's fingers right in front of him. In many ways, the Boston Strangler never had a chance to be normal. Violence and cruelty had always been woven into his existence. And as an adult, he developed an insatiable desire to inflict pain on others. It was almost like he wanted everyone else to suffer as much as he did. By the time police finally tracked him down, The Boston Strangler was one of the most hated men in Massachusetts. He had plenty of enemies. So when the Strangler himself became a victim of murder, nobody knew who to blame. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the death of the Boston Strangler. This week, we'll follow law enforcement as they work to uncover the Strangler's identity. Next week, we'll cover the killer's arrest and his own mysterious unsolved murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
The summer of 1962 brought sweltering heat to the state of Massachusetts. People pushed open their windows, relishing even the slightest breeze. On June 14th of that year, 25-year-old Juris Slessers stood on a street corner in southwest Boston. He wiped the sweat from his forehead. He was waiting for his mother, 55-year-old Anna Slessers, to come down from her apartment. He was supposed to take her to an evening church service, but she was taking forever. So he headed up the stairs of the complex and knocked on her door. There was no response. Juris thought perhaps his mother had gotten distracted while running errands. He was certain she'd be back soon, so he sat on the stoop and waited. But close to 30 minutes passed, and there was no sight of her. He climbed back up the stairs and pounded on the door. He put an ear up to the door and heard complete silence. Juris knew something was wrong. It was very unlike his mother to forget their plans. A wave of anxiety came over him. Without thinking twice, he rammed into the apartment door and knocked it down completely. He arrived at a scene that would scar him for the rest of his life. Anna Slesser's body lay limp in the hallway next to the bathroom. The cloth belt that was usually used to fasten her bathrobe had been tied around her throat. Juris was in shock. He couldn't cry or scream. All he could do was call the police. Boston police officer James Mellon arrived around 8.30 p.m. He surveyed the scene and was struck by the way Mrs. Slesser's body lay splayed on the ground. Her left leg jutted straight in front of her while the other stuck out at a right angle. It was an unnatural position. Goosebumps spread across Mellon's arms. Someone had specifically arranged her body that way. As he looked further, Mellon found that someone had combed through the bathroom trash. Mrs. Slesser's dresser had been flung open and her clothes were put out of order. The record player was on, but the speaker had been turned off. Officer Mellon felt sick to his stomach. This was clearly the scene of a murder. Officer Mellon's first order of business was to interview Anna Slesser's neighbors. He needed to know if anyone had seen or heard anything out of the ordinary on the night of her death. The man who lived directly below Mrs. Slessers offered up a bit of information. Well, there was something a bit odd about this evening. I lay down for a nap around six o'clock, and a few minutes later, I heard a loud bumping sound right above me. It sounded like someone plopped down a big piece of furniture. Then it was the strangest thing. You know that feeling you get when someone is creeping up behind you? I swear, I felt like someone was inside my apartment watching me. I couldn't sleep at all. Unfortunately, a sound and a creepy feeling weren't much to go on, so the case was left open, and days passed with no new developments. Officer Mellon found himself combing through the crime scene photos. It looked staged, like whoever did this hoped the cops would assume it was a botched robbery. And Mellon's suspicions were about to be confirmed. Two weeks later, another grisly murder shocked the city. On June 30th, 68-year-old Nina Nichols' landlord unlocked her apartment door. Nina's sister had called to request a wellness check, 
Apparently, the two women had dinner plans, and Nina never showed up. The landlord walked inside. The apartment was in a state of disarray. Drawers had been flung open, and pieces of clothing and jewelry littered the floor. Nina's bedroom door was wide open. Without thinking, the landlord went in. There, he saw Nina's naked body splayed out on the bed. Two nylon stockings had been tied around her neck. The landlord had never seen anything so awful. He ran outside and called the police. A few minutes later, an officer named Lieutenant Sherry arrived at the scene with a team of detectives. Oh, God. Poor woman. Motive, Sherry. What's the motive? Uh, Looks like a robbery to me. It looks like it, but it's not. There's valuables everywhere. The killer didn't touch her jewelry or silverware. You're saying it's staged? I think so. Just like at Anna Slesser's apartment. Uh, Lieutenant Cherry? Uh-huh. I think we're dealing with a serial killer. It made sense. There were clear similarities between both crime scenes. In addition to staged robberies, Lieutenant Sherry discovered something even stranger. Neither one of the victim's apartments showed signs of forced entry. That meant that whoever the faceless killer was, he must have been very charming, because it appeared that his victims willingly let him enter their homes. Police were starting to connect the dots, but the killer was still on the streets, and before police could track him down, he struck again. On July 2nd, officers found 65-year-old Helen Blake dead in her home. Her apartment was similarly ravaged. Her body lay in bed with a pair of nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her throat. Signs of sexual assault were apparent. No expensive belongings had been removed from the home. This was the third strangulation in a period of just three weeks. Boston Police Commissioner Edmund McNamara knew he needed to take action. He denied all requests for leave and reassigned every detective on the force to homicide. He pulled all sex offender files out of the archives. The police checked up on every man between the ages of 18 and 40 years old who had been recently dismissed from nearby psychiatric facilities. Officers hung notices around every neighborhood in Boston, pleading with women to keep their doors locked, never allow strangers inside, and report any instance of strange behavior. They opened a number for a new emergency hotline and published it in the newspapers throughout the city. By July 1962, The killer had earned his own moniker, the Boston Strangler. Even though knowledge of the crimes was ubiquitous throughout the city, major questions remained. People, police officers included, weren't totally certain that the Boston Strangler was one person. The murders could have been the work of a single killer, but they also could have been committed by a gang or perhaps by copycat killers. The possibility of not just one killer, but many, struck terror into the hearts of Bostonians. And the police commissioner wasn't immune to the public's distress. He was still in his first month of the job and knew this was an important moment to prove that he was up to the task. But the crimes just kept coming. On August 21st, the police received a panicked call from the landlord at yet another Boston apartment complex. I take care of an apartment building on the West End. One of my tenants, Ida Erga, people hadn't been hearing from her, so I went to check up on her and she wasn't moving. Something was around her neck. Please, come quickly. 
When the detectives arrived, the first thing they noticed was a white pillowcase tied tightly around Ida Erga's throat. All the rest of the signs were there, too. The ransacked apartment, no traces of forced entry, an elderly female victim. All the valuables were still intact. The Boston Strangler had struck again. Coming up, the Boston Strangler's killing spree continues. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices. Others warn of impending doom. And then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to our story. By early August 1962, the Boston Strangler had claimed the lives of four women. His latest victim was 74-year-old Ida Erga, and as news of her murder spread, Boston fell into an even deeper state of panic. Rumors circulated, and they became more and more bizarre with each passing day. You know, Frank has a friend on the force. He said the Strangler supposedly has some sort of superhuman strength. I know it sounds crazy, but there were holes punched through brick walls at that first murder scene. My cousin's a prosecutor, and he told me that the Strangler scales the walls of the apartment buildings. He apparently uses some sort of grappling hook. I'm getting new locks on the house. You think locks can stop a man with super strength? Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't take precautions. I just mean he could be anybody, you know? He could be standing inside the supermarket right now. The media only perpetuated this paranoia. Countless theories and speculative stories ran in the local papers. But after a full summer of panic, the Boston Herald tried to calm the city's nerves by publishing an editorial titled, Hysteria Solves Nothing. For the rest of the population, there ought to be some comfort in statistics. 
If it may be fairly said the police are looking for a needle in a haystack, it may be said with equal validity that a given person's chance of becoming a victim of the killer or killers are almost nil. And it worked. The essay was well-received. It felt as though people were really taking it to heart. But the piece didn't last. Six days later, on August 30th, 67-year-old Jane Sullivan's dead body was found in her first-floor apartment. A medical examiner determined that she'd been dead for nearly a week. Again, there were clear signs of sexual assault and the strangler's signature flourish. Two nylon stockings wrapped tightly around her neck. The exact time of Jane's death was estimated to be August 20th, the same day that Ida Erga was murdered. The strangler had claimed two victims in the span of 24 hours. Three months passed without another strangulation, but people's panic didn't subside. Over the summer of 1962, a number of women claimed that a man had been running through the halls of apartment complexes and slipping obscene notes underneath the doors. Only a week later, a student was arrested for using a small flashlight to gawk at women's feet while he masturbated in a movie theater. To the people of Boston, any one of these deviants could have been the strangler. In the wake of this mass paranoia, a local paper called the Boston Advertiser ran an open letter to the strangler himself on their front page. It was entitled, Appeal to the Strangler. Don't kill again. Come to us for help. You are a sick man. You know it, although you are clever and smart enough to have avoided detection by the shrewdest detectives in this city. You need help. This appeal is to you, the man you were before this terrible urge overwhelmed you. You don't want to kill again but you know you will, unless you give yourself up. On September 5th, the chairman of Harvard University's Department of Legal Medicine met with the Boston Police Department, medical professionals, and psychiatrists for a conference. He told the crowd, Since robbery is not the motive, we are dealing with a demented man. There is nothing to tie these crimes together. No single piece of proof. The more such things happen, the more are likely to happen because the world is full of screwballs and there are so many around, we just couldn't begin to round them all up. We need a common denominator. And there were common denominators in these murders, although few and far between. All of the victims were elderly widows and they each had links to medical work. Helen Blake and Jane Sullivan were nurses. Nina Nichols was a physiotherapist, and Ida Erga and Anna Slessers were both outpatients. Lieutenant Sherry racked his brain for a link between the murders. Clearly, each woman was strangled using a piece of clothing or bedding that belonged to them. But as he scrutinized the crime scene photos, he found one more similarity. The knot that tied off the murder weapon was always the same. It was called a granny knot, and it was consistent at all of the crime scenes. This breakthrough was proof positive that the killing spree was committed by a single murderer. And while Lieutenant Sherry breathed a heavy sigh of relief and triumph, he couldn't help but feel a little sick to his stomach. The fact that one man could be capable of committing this crime multiple times over was something that Sherry couldn't stomach. He had been on the force for a long time, but he had never come across a monster quite like this. 
Whoever the Boston Strangler was, his cruelty knew no bounds. On December 5, 1962, another victim surfaced. The telltale signs were present. Ransacked apartment, valuables left intact, granny nut. But something was very different. The victim was 20-year-old Sophie Clark. She was at least three decades younger than all the Strangler's other targets. It seemed like the killer was breaking his own rules. The Strangler's clear M.O. was one of the few consistencies in this case. But with the death of Sophie Clark, any semblance of certainty had been obliterated. Officers had no idea how to track the Strangler or predict his next target. Three weeks later, 23-year-old Pamela Bassett was found murdered in her apartment in southwest Boston, not far from the home of the Strangler's first victim. The crime scene was all too familiar. Prior to December, the only people who truly felt at risk were elderly women. But now, as the Strangler's targets became younger and younger, it seemed like no one was safe. By New Year's Day of 1963, police hadn't found a single substantial clue. The death toll had reached seven, and Commissioner McNamara was mortified. A brief respite came in the form of a peaceful winter. Not a single strangulation was reported for five months, the longest the city had gone since the first murder. But Lieutenant Sherry and the rest of the Boston PD were just waiting for the Strangler's next move. And sure enough, on May 8, 1963, a man discovered the body of his fiancée, 26-year-old Beverly Sammons. The Strangler had changed his pattern again. While Beverly's body was found with the telltale stockings wrapped around her neck, she had also been stabbed 22 times. The Strangler was getting more aggressive. If there was ever a time for the police to double down on their efforts, it was now. 43-year-old Boston detective Phil Di Natale rose to the occasion. He resolved to catch the Strangler by any means necessary. I can just picture him in whatever sewer he sleeps in, sneering to himself, saying, come and catch me, come and catch me, and I'm going to be the one to do it. Just you wait. These strangulation cases, Philly, I don't like what they're doing to you. Auntie, that's just the job. Someone dies, you spend an eternity beating your head against the wall, then hopefully you find the guy. That's just how it works. Well... I may know someone who can help you. With all due respect, how exactly could you help me? Give me the phone. Phil's aunt dialed a number. He could hear the voice from the other end. It was an attorney. His client was interested in talking to Phil, but he was hesitant. Apparently, he'd reached out to the police a number of times over the past year, but was ridiculed. Phil told his aunt that he was willing to take the man's client seriously. The lawyer hung up, and Phil and his aunt waited ten agonizing minutes for a callback. Finally, the phone rang. Hello, Detective. My client's name is James Davis. Are you familiar with him? Oh, God. Don't tell me. The psychic? Yes. He is a student of extrasensory perception. And I'm not particularly fond of your tone, Detective. I can assure you, Mr. Davis's abilities are nothing to laugh at. Well, look, I'll take any help I can get. I'll be at the station tonight at 7.30. We'll see you then. That evening, Detective Di Natale arrived at the station. He was greeted by James Davis, 
a balding man with broad shoulders and deep brown eyes. Davis spoke with a lisp, but every word that came from his mouth was delivered with confidence. Despite his reservations, the detective actually found the self-proclaimed psychic quite convincing. Perhaps this was just what the Boston PD needed to solve the case. Coming up, the Boston Strangler commits his most heinous crime yet, and the police finally uncover his true identity. And now back to the story. In May of 1963, Detective Phil DiNatale met with self-proclaimed psychic James Davis. The clairvoyant wanted to help police track down the Boston Strangler. By that point, the strangulations had been going on for well over a year, and they didn't seem to be slowing down. All of the leads proved to be flimsy within a matter of days, so Detective Di Natale was willing to take any help he could get, even if it meant consulting with a local psychic. He couldn't prove anything. All he could do was express the thoughts and premonitions that came to him. He hoped they'd shed light on the case, but he couldn't guarantee it. With that in mind, he wanted to show the officers what he was capable of. He shut his eyes tightly and spoke through a sort of trance. I picture the Strangler as a tall man with bony hands, pale white skin, and his eyes. I am particularly struck by his eyes. He has a habit of pushing back this one curl of hair that falls on his forehead. One of his teeth is missing on the upper right side of his mouth. He's in a hospital of some sort. Detective Di Natale had no reason to believe any of this was accurate, but he was astonished by the level of detail Davis described. So he presented Davis with a stack of photographs. They were all of Boston men who'd been arrested for robbery or breaking and entering in the past year, and each of them had records of sexual assault. Davis chose a photograph from the middle of the stack. Without hesitation, he declared that this was the Boston Strangler. The man in the photograph was Arnold Wallace, a 26-year-old psychiatric patient at the Boston State Hospital. Phil had arrested Wallace after he tried to break into a tea shop the previous year. Phil remembered his drive back to the station with the young man. It had been disturbing. Wallace was almost impossible to communicate with. Whenever Detective Di Natale asked him a question, he'd either stare back at him blankly or go off on a tangent about how much he loved young girls. The detective had to hand it to James Davis. Out of anyone in that stack of photographs, Arnold Wallace seemed to be the most likely culprit. But still, the officers weren't entirely convinced by Davis's ability. There were only about seven pictures, so it could have been a lucky pick. But Davis had another trick up his sleeve. He recounted the crime scenes of Sophia Clark and Anna Slessers with astounding precision, especially considering he'd never been to any of the places he described. From that moment forward, the officers working the Strangler case conferred with James Davis on a regular basis. For a while, he was a tremendous asset. Then, on May 20th, Detective Di Natale met James Davis and his attorney at the Boston State Hospital where Arnold Wallace was being held. By the time the detective arrived, Davis had already spoken with Wallace. 
Why are we here, James? Well, Detective, my visions thus far have been strong, but not as strong as they could be. I'm positive that if I were to occupy the same physical space as Mr. Wallace, we could make great strides. And the two of you just spoke, correct? How'd it go? My goodness! If words could only do it justice. When I walked in, that strange boy looked up to me, and as my attorney introduced me, he simply said, I know. It's as if my intense fixation on him has been so powerful, it manifested a subconscious feeling of having met me before. Truly remarkable. Uh-huh. Remarkable. Right. For the detective, this was starting to feel like a stretch. There were people's lives at stake, and he was letting a man with no legal or policing background steer the ship. His fellow officers, however, were still compelled by Davis's abilities. In fact, the next big step in the investigation came directly from him. He insisted that the police bring Arnold Wallace in for a lie detector test. In early June, detectives Di Natale and Mellon escorted Arnold Wallace to the office of a private polygraph expert. During the test, Wallace could hardly answer a single question. When asked to focus on the polygraph, he seemed confused and fell silent. Accordingly, the results of the test proved inconclusive. More importantly, Mellon and Di Natale left the situation knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Wallace was not their man. Wallace's IQ was 40 points below average, but the Strangler's crime scenes were methodical. Wallace was a poor communicator, yet the Strangler needed charisma and charm to enter so many women's homes. The facts just didn't add up. With that, the Boston Police Department's main suspect had been tossed to the side. There were a few other leads, but they all went cold. It was a somber note to begin the summer on. For the next few months, things were relatively peaceful in Boston. Come autumn, however, victims began falling like leaves off trees. Between September and November, two more women were found strangled in their homes. Then, on New Year's Day of 1964, the police received a call from 18-year-old Pamela Parker. <laughs> Please, send someone. It's horrible. Ma'am, calm down and slowly tell me what happened. The Strangler. It had to be him. I just know it. And Mary, she was only 19. What kind of monster? We'll send someone over right away. By that point, Boston police were fairly desensitized to the Strangler's crime scenes. But when they arrived at the third floor apartment, they realized that not only had the Strangler struck again, he'd ascended to a whole new level of depravity. 19-year-old Mary Sullivan's dead body was propped up against the backboard of her bed. She'd been sexually assaulted with a broomstick. A pink bow was tied around a pair of stockings wrapped tightly around her neck. It was like the strangler was leaving this body as a gift for the police to find. Lastly, and perhaps most sickening, a colorful postcard lay at her feet. It read, Happy New Year. This exceedingly brutal killing, punctuated by the lack of any new leads or substantial evidence, brought the investigation to an all-time low. However, on March 17, 1964, everything changed. 
We have a perp being chased through the Harvard Yard. A bit over six feet tall, dark hair. Requesting backup. Enter 29-year-old Albert DeSalvo. Police in Cambridge, Massachusetts were called to the scene of numerous break-ins, and they found DeSalvo roaming the area. He took off on foot as soon as he saw the police cruiser. Before long, officers apprehended him and took him back to the station. When the police questioned DeSalvo about the break-ins, he completely broke down. He detailed his horrific childhood and the abuse he suffered at the hands of his alcoholic father. He told officers he'd been in and out of prison since he was a child. Finally, he cursed his father's name and repeated one sentiment over and over. How can you accept a man after he's done such things? What kind of a man is that? Clearly, DeSalvo was more than a petty criminal. He was a deeply disturbed and erratic individual. Police sent him to the Westboro State Hospital, where he was diagnosed with sociopathic personality disorder. Individuals with this disorder are often unable to empathize with others and have little regard for the law or the rules of society. After pleading innocent to charges of breaking, entering, and assault, he was released from police custody on an $8,000 bail. As was customary, DeSalvo's name and information was dispatched to a six-state network of police departments. The Cambridge police were immediately inundated with messages from detectives in Connecticut. As it turned out, DeSalvo was wanted in numerous districts for breaking into women's homes and tying them to their beds. On November 5th, police descended on DeSalvo's small home in Malden, Massachusetts. Officers booked him into Cambridge jail on December 10th, but he didn't last long in the prison environment. He allegedly started hearing voices. He complained to guards that his wife had snuck into his cell and was chastising him all through the night. He reported feelings of suicidal ideation. On January 14th, the court ordered him to be committed to the Bridgewater State Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. In this setting, DeSalvo was much more comfortable perhaps too comfortable. He made friends fast and boasted about crimes ranging from petty theft to rape. On March 7, 1965, he went too far. He told his ward mate, George Nasser, a secret that he couldn't take back. I've done it all, more than the police will ever be able to pin on me. To be honest, I've been duping them for years now. I've been pulling one over on this whole rotten city. Those stranglings, the Boston Strangler that they talk about in the paper? That's me, little old me, outsmarting the entire police department. When you think about it, it should be them in the loony bin, not me. Nasser called his attorney and told him about DeSalvo's confession. Within hours, the police were en route. They thought they'd been handed the Boston Strangler on a silver platter, but that wasn't the end of Albert DeSalvo's story. There was still one more murder waiting in the wings, the mysterious killing of the Strangler himself. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the death of the Boston Strangler. For more information on the death of the Boston Strangler, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Boston Strangler by Gerald Frank to be extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Laura Faye Smith, Jen Wong, Joe Hernandez, Tom Bauer, and Brian Green. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.